This is Talking Ears. My name is Frank Werdinger. This is the first episode of 2023, and with one year of this show under our belt, I want to take a moment to reflect. We are thankful for all the guests that have come on and shared their perspectives and shared their time with us, and we're thankful to all the listeners who've sent in their comments and thoughts about the episodes or the stories that they've heard. I feel like we're starting to build a little community here, and I'm proud of what we've created this past year. Last year, we had musicians with lots of different experiences of tinnitus and other hearing difficulties. We had engineers who came on and gave us their unique, thoughtful perspectives on the state of the music industry and how we can use our knowledge to help protect other people's hearing while we enjoy music. And we've had clinicians, fellow music audiologists, who have come on to share their perspective when they can see both sides of it, the personal and also the clinical patterns that emerge. Today, our guest is Bruce Hubbard, who's a clinician that I've worked closely with in the care of many patients, but he's not a music audiologist. He's a psychologist who applies cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, to the treatment of patients with tinnitus. In this episode, I'm going to ask Bruce to explain CBT and how it differs from other tinnitus treatments, including audiologic care. We're going to discuss the practical science behind this sometimes elusive term called habituation. And then, most importantly for me, we're going to be hearing more about Bruce's musical side. In this episode, we'll be hearing tracks that he shared from bands that he's played in throughout the years, some of which he thinks might have been the ones that basically caused his tenderness in the first place. And one quick disclaimer. Although Bruce and I have shared patience, none of the conversation that we're having is pertaining to any individual case or any individual. We are merely discussing clinical patterns that we have seen and our own opinions. This show is intended to create space for dialogue and allow guests to share their experiences. Nothing that is said should be taken as medical opinion or medical advice for your own individual case. We welcome comments and conversations regarding topics that we discuss in this episode. However, for questions pertaining to your own health, we encourage you to contact your medical providers. So CBT is a form of psychological treatment, and that can be you know, off-putting for some people, but it's different than a typical kind of psychotherapy because it's very practical. Um, it's very science-based. Uh, it's focused on getting people practical concepts and skills that they can use to see some immediate relief and promote a longer-term adaptation and habituation to tinnitus. You know, the perspective that you bring to life is going to have a really strong effect on how you feel and how you behave and the opportunities that open up for you and so on. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we call that the cognitive part of cognitive behavior therapy is how you think about tinnitus, how you think about its, uh, uh, you know, relationship to your life and to your future. Well, let let me say there are two contrasting perspectives one can take to try to simplify it. And mm-hmm. the one is, and I was stuck in this mode for six months myself after mm-hmm. my tinnitus started, what I call the cure perspective, yeah, which goes something like, I'm suffering with this now. There's no treatment for it. So unless I can find a way to reduce or remove my tinnitus, I will always suffer. Yes. 
And you will if you maintain that Mm -hmm. perspective on it, that way of thinking about it. Um, I'm really grateful that I somehow stumbled on what I now call the habituation perspective, which is even if my tinnitus doesn't go away, and this really (laughs) gets people, but even if it gets louder, I can be okay because I can learn how to change how I think about it, pay attention to it, how I behave in relation to it in a way that helps me get better at tolerating it and promoting habituation, which is a process by which the brain just gradually, gradually over time reduces its attention to tinnitus and its emotional reaction. So back to how does it differ from audiology approaches. Audiology approach primarily is to use external sound to interfere with the perception of tinnitus, to soften the perception of tinnitus, try to, you know, kind of help the brain put it in the background. By reducing the emotional reaction in that way, the hope is that gradually the alarm, the alarm brain, the survival brain, the part of the brain that's reacting to tinnitus will learn that this is not an important sound Mm -hmm. and will gradually reduce the reaction as it has done with countless other meaningless sounds in our lives. The way I view that is that that's one particular strategy. Mm -hmm. But for audiology, that is the central and often the sole strategy Right. And just so we're clear to the listener, what we're talking about are masking devices, which are sometimes ear level. They sometimes look like hearing aids that just play white noise or other filtered noises. Um, That's different from a hearing aid that one might be fit if you have a hearing loss, which would then both treat the hearing loss and provide background sound um, that has been shown to be very effective for treatment of tinnitus. So back to uh, what you're saying, Bruce, with with masking devices. But in CBT, we view that as a relatively weak uh, intervention compared to the psychological strategies, cognitive restructuring, what I call careful thinking, that process of stepping back and trying to understand your tinnitus differently and think about it in a way that will help you calm down and accept it and get better at coexisting with it. So, you know, so you you can, with CBT, you can use sound therapy or sound enrichment, Mm -hmm. um, I typically call it, but it's viewed just as a coping skill, um, not the central solution. I think of this whole process as something's broken. Say you broke your leg. If you broke your leg, you would, there are some similarities to what we go through with tinnitus. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of it first. A lot of acute pain, that's emotional pain for us, typically anxiety and despair. If you break your leg, you get to use a crutch and you use that crutch to help relieve the pain and improve your ability to 
function. Mm-hmm. That's how I view the sound enrichment. You mean like using sound enrichment as a crutch, like as a tool? Crutch as a tool to help take the pressure off the discomfort and uh, help you function better, help you sleep better, help you concentrate better, help you let go of tinnitus, right? Mm-hmm. But just like a crutch for a broken leg, as you habituate, the healing in this case is habituation, as you habituate, then you gradually give up that crutch. Uh, but the big difference here is that if someone breaks their leg, they know legs, he- bones heal. Gradually, mm. I'm gonna, it's going to get easier and I'm going to be out running again. But with tinnitus, because people don't understand habituation and how it works, they think they're stuck forever with the pain right. and the disability of the whatever's broken. Um, but, uh, you know, I try to instill in my clients the, you know, expectation that this can happen, that, you know, there, there are tools I can use to facilitate habituation, mm-hmm. and it's something that, uh, you know, will occur. Um, and there are, are do's and don'ts if you break your leg, yeah. right? There are things you can do to promote healing, and there are things you don't want to do, right? Because they're going to retard healing, like you don't want to grab a hammer and wail on your cast with the hammer, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. But that's what people do with tinnitus all the time by, mm-hmm. you know, complaining about it, focusing on in on everything that's awful about it. They're just wailing on their uh, on the injury. They're fueling kind of the negative side of it, certainly. Fueling the brain's reaction. Yeah. You know, Bruce, I like the way that you explained habituation because I hear a lot of people running around in circles trying to explain what it means. And a lot of times they end up on something that sounds a whole lot like that old placating phrase that we hear from the medical community all the time, the learn to live with it. And when you talk about habituation, it's essentially the full phrase of that. When uh, people say, for example, if you, you talk to a lot of people, and this is true for a lot of musicians, if you, you know, if they, you say, boy, I have tinnitus, they'll say, I do too. Well, yep. what's it like for you? It bothered me at first, but I got used to it. Yeah. That process of getting used to it is technically habituation. Yes. And it's unfortunate that the ear, nose, and throat doctors don't understand that mm-hmm. and can't explain that to people at the the time they diagnose the problem and tell you it may never go away. Completely. And Bruce, I'm also thankful for all the information that you've put out on your own website, your own personal story, which I encourage all my listeners to go and read. Uh, But you also put out a wonderful guide for what CBT is and isn't. And, you know, you and I have talked offline about how that has helped individuals who are in kind of a milder state and able to uh, work themselves through a sort of self-guided semi-therapy. But there's one word in particular that I was hoping you could speak a little bit more about that really caught my attention. It's this term, courageous action. Sure. Yeah. That's what I uh, would refer to as the behavioral part of CBT. And let me step back a little bit and explain that cognitive behavior therapy is a science-based approach to psychological treatment for emotional conditions, emotional reactions, And it has evolved over the decades. But if you look up CBT, cognitive behavior therapy on the internet, or certainly if you ask an audiologist, they'll tell you that it's Mm -hmm. about changing your thinking to change how you feel. Um, They may say, oh, and there are also some relaxation exercises involved. It's like the movie poster tagline level of detail there. 
Yeah, and that's CBT from the 1990s. Uh, okay. And that's when the late 90s, the, I don't know if I'm getting into too much de- detail here. No, please. But the uh, the late 90s, the early 2000s, that's when the CBT for tinnitus research was done. That's what put CBT for tinnitus on the map. That the programs used are out of date. Mm. So there have been other types of CBT that are much more suited to chronic conditions like tinnitus. Uh, And they incorporate concepts like acceptance and mindfulness as central Mm. to the treatment. So one of these is called acceptance and commitment therapy. Its acronym is pronounced ACT. Um, and that's, that's where that largely comes from. Okay. Uh, and there is a good study that found ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, to significantly reduce tinnitus distress. So just for so, my clarification, ACT is a subset or a subversion of CBT. Yes, it is it. A, okay. a, a close cousin of CBT. It came out of CBT, out of the uh, common research. Okay. So ACT is acceptance and commitment therapy is really about being clear about what you, uh, of all the aspects of the problem you're facing, getting clear about where you can and can't get control. This Mm. is really, really important with tinnitus because we can't get control. There's no no techniques at, at this time, at present for us to get control over the volume of the tinnitus. There is no supplement. Dietary changes don't do it. There's no medication. None of the Mm -hmm. uh, devices out there even that claim to do so, none of them have really been shown to do that, that uh, shown that they can reduce tinnitus volume. So that's what we call a radical acceptance, that Mm -hmm. we can't get control over tinnitus. In my field, uh, we look at this as similar to chronic pain. Yes. Um, there are chronic pain conditions fairly common that you there's no treatment for it. Mm-hmm. So that falls into the category of things in life that we desperately don't want, but we can't get rid of. <laughs> yep. So we need a way to somehow learn to coexist with those things and to reduce the impact that they have on our lives. So the idea of acceptance and commitment therapy is to accept those things that we can't change, that we can't directly control, and commit to living a full life despite those. And this is kind of related, and I heard you mention this before, the serenity um, uh, saying, I, I don't know what you would describe that as, that the, um, I'm sure you could describe it better. We, but we say, we don't say serenity prayer, where this is not a religious approach. We say serenity creed. Creed, there we go. <laughs> yeah. I, I knew but there was yeah. a word that I was losing. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, that that is... Uh, the idea, again, very much yeah. so, that there are things we can and can't control, and 
it's really, really wise to be clear about what those things are so that you're not banging your head against the immovable wall of tinnitus in this case. You're not expending all your hope and energy and money on making tinnitus go away. Mm. That instead you're recognizing this is something I can't control and you're putting your time and energy into accepting it so that's, and that, com- committing to moving on and courageously back to yeah. that idea while hearing your tinnitus, which may be upsetting for you, getting out and living fully. Mm-hmm. And that, that courageous action, when I, when I heard that phrase first, it kind of struck me as a powerful phrase in amongst itself because and maybe I'm paraphrasing here, so correct me, but what you're essentially saying is the act of waking up, going about your life, having a full day, despite or during the process of experiencing your tinnitus, that in itself is a courageous action that you should be um, compelled to thank yourself for, compelled to to respect and appreciate. Is that kind of the nutshell? Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, it's okay. the idea that Courage is not being fearless. Courage is feeling fear and doing the right thing. Yeah, that's so powerful because I think in our society, we're, we're surrounded by people telling us to be humble, be modest, uh, you know, suck it up, go, you know, go walk it off. And this is a little bit of the opposite. This is a little bit of like, hey, admit to yourself, this is hard. This isn't going to be easy. But the fact that you're doing it deserves, you know, you deserve a treat. Good job. Yes, Absolutely. Now I want to circle all the way back. You mentioned working with musicians, and I know from our conversations that a lot of your patients are musicians with tinnitus, but you yourself come from a musical background. You perform music, you play music, you write music, music is part of your, you know, who you are. Can you tell me kind of where all that started? Uh, Yeah, it was a song called Scarlet Ribbons. Okay. Uh, And I was uh, probably four years old and... I, I'm a little older than that now, so this was back in the 1960s. And my parents bought me a record player, mm-hmm. uh, and I had a single of Scarlet Ribbons, and I you could you could put the record player, a little turntable, on repeat, so that when it got to the end of the record, it would just the arm would pick up and go back and start over again, mm-hmm. and I just would leave that going for hours. And I just was impassioned with this song, Scarlet Ribbons. Huh. And uh, it, uh, that's my first memory of uh, being in love with music. And I could name a number of other songs through my childhood that stood out like that. And, uh, you know, then I, uh, <clears throat> when I guess I, I was 11 and saw the movie Woodstock, that pulled me in big time. Yeah. Um, that's when I, uh, I, I had my first guitar lesson when I was six, but it didn't really stick. Um, but uh, when I was 11, I saw the movie Woodstock and uh, picked up a guitar and bought a songbook, and that was the end of it. I <laughs> never put it down. Um, 
And uh, so I think I was 13 when I joined my first band and we uh, played, you know, middle school dances and parties and things like that. Yeah, it was literally a garage band. We rehearsed in our garages. And uh, then when I was uh, 14 or 15, I fell in love with classical music and I studied classical piano for many years. That was going to be my profession. piano and composition uh and uh but i found myself in uh in college and undergrad program for psychology and i fell in love with psychology (laughs) and and it was a struggle it was a conflict yeah in every step of the way it was like well let me just see what happens i'll be in this band let me see where it goes and i'll apply to graduate school for psychology and see where that goes and psychology won out yeah um but uh, I continued to play, and uh, I played in some pretty loud bands. There was one band I played in in the late 90s, uh, very loud, uh, rehearsing in those little New York City uh, rehearsal studios, like a room probably like 12 by 12 feet. With- yeah. You know, a drum kit, <laughs> stacks, and, you know, three or four people in there with guitars and basses. And uh, my position was about, my right ear was about a foot away from the crash cymbal. Mm-hmm. I know and, that spot uh, well. Of course, I, uh, <laughs> I, you know, tried using the foam earplugs, but everything sounded like crap and I couldn't hear myself sing. And uh, so I inevitably would take them out. Mm-hmm. think that's what happened because the uh, my tinnitus is i have it on in both ears but it's probably twice as loud on the right side and mm. much busier and and i had my audiogram is uh, in the moderate high frequency in the moderate range there it's in the, the mild range on the left oh okay so i suspect that's what happened yeah it, that, um, that would kind of point to it yeah. The years of that. In no. fact, you can kind of see that notch just before it falls off the chart. There's yep. a little notch there. When did your tinnitus go from something in the background that you didn't really think about to I'm aware of this and it's it's I think your your words were is it took you for a ride. Um <laughs> I first noticed it actually when I was in that band, not surprisingly, and went and got it checked out. I had got my first audiogram. I think I was 30 years old. Okay. And uh, it, I still have that tinnitus in my left ear. It has not changed. Um, and, uh, you know, I got the usual story. Yeah, it's tinnitus. At that point, my, you know, my audiogram, you know, below 8,000 hertz was perfect. And they said, well, you have tinnitus. And not going to go away. You'll get used to it. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I did, I, it bothered me, but I habituated fairly quickly and fully so that, you know, I'd notice it when things were really quiet, when I laid down to go to sleep at night, but it really didn't bother me. Um, and then I was quite a bit older. I was 45, uh, and I experienced sudden onset in my right ear. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just 
watching a South Park rerun late one night. My family was in bed. The TV was turned really low, and it started. Hmm. And that was 18 years ago, and it has not stopped. Yeah, that was a punch in the gut. Yeah. The way I think about it uh, from a physiological standpoint is that there's, you know, wear and tear on our, uh, our hair cells in the inner ear and the cochlea. You know, think of the roots of those little hair cells as the, you know, foundation of a building mm-hmm. or the roots of a tree. Yeah. And as strong weather comes through, it affects the building, blows the tree, loosens up the roots of the tree. But the tree doesn't come down. But the wear and tear over decades on the roots of that tree may lead to a point at which it could be a beautiful, sunny, completely calm day. But those little roots just finally give up the ghost and the Mm. tree tips over. Mm. That's what I suspect happened because there was no, again, I, I, I relate it back to the, the crash symbol. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when I was 30 years old, and my audiologist uh, signed off on that. Yeah, he calls this my Led Zeppelin ear. <laughs> I, like, uh, I kind of like that. I mean, between that yeah, yeah. and also the, uh, the the beautiful but also really depressing tree imagery that you just laid out. I mean, Juan's on the call with us. Uh, do, you, do you have anything to say about that, that concept? I mean, yeah, I think that's a really nice way to put it and i've never thought about it that way it's a a a refreshing perspective because Mm -hmm. it's so different but it makes a lot of sense you know and i want to say physiologically it kind of lines up too because with Mm -hmm. cell death you essentially have a moment where the cell just goes look i gave it my all (laughs) like we're done here this is my last report that i'm filing (laughs) Uh, at this point forward (laughs) call me scar tissue You know, Bruce, you and I have something else in common, which is that both of our onsets of tinnitus change the course of our lives and careers pretty drastically. Can you tell me kind of pre that one bad South Park episode that you watched, what you were doing before that, and then kind of how that how that morphed a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, no, I had a uh, wonderful, you know, psychology practice in New York City in Manhattan. And, uh, you know, I, in fact, at that time I had uh, recently expanded it. I'd gotten a much bigger office and hired some people to come in uh, and work with me. Uh, So that was going really well. I was definitely knocked off course Mm -hmm. by my tinnitus. I was like a zombie for the next six months, just kind of going through the motions. I uh, tried, (laughs) I had some, some, I, I never, I never used tinnitus maskers. I, I didn't use hearing aids. I mm-hmm. did use some external sound, 
Um, and I did, because again, you know, you can imagine a job of a psychologist, a psychotherapist is to sit in a silent office and talk to people and listen to them. Yeah. So now I'm in that context with the, you know, whir of my tinnitus and all the scary, dark thoughts that were constantly coming up around it. Mm-hmm. So I did try to bring a sound machine into the office. I could get away with that with some of my patients who I knew better and I could explain to them what was going on. Mm. Um, that helped somewhat. You know, it was about six months of that and, you know, I, changing my diet. I, I completely eliminated caffeine and alcohol. I didn't know what would, mm-hmm. what was maybe contributing to it. Any, I was willing to do anything. You know, to get rid of the sound. And were you finding those those specific suggestions or or solutions? Where were you finding those options, or was it just kind of off the top of your head, like maybe less salt? Let's try that. <laughs> I went to the top tinnitus otologist in New York City, okay. and those were his recommendations. Okay. He also had me. Uh, I mean, remember this was two thousand five. Sure. He also had me uh, taking supplements, to all the usual nonsense. I'm going to say now it's nonsense it because I now am familiar with the data on all of this and none of it helps with tinnitus. It's all nonsense. Okay. The dietary recommendations, the supplements, all of it. So for six months, I was working with this quack and uh, just praying that my tinnitus would come down in volume or if not go away. Uh, and by the end of that six month period, I was just beside myself with hopelessness. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm again grateful, as I said earlier, that I just through my own library research as a psychologist, I had access to uh, academic journals. Right. So I was reading everything I could on tinnitus. And honestly, a lot of it seemed like nonsense, but the psycho- <laughs> psychology <laughs> research was very interesting and yeah. very helpful. That's where I, I, you know, I'd been a practicing cognitive behavior therapy. That was my approach. I yeah. had fallen in love with that in college and sought out a graduate program so I could specialize in it. And, uh, but I had no idea I could use that for my tinnitus to help, help, help reduce the reaction. So I could just imagine yeah. sitting there next to you in the library, minding my own business, reading my own history book. And suddenly you just stand up and shout, Eureka, I have the tools already. <laughs> I am a CBT therapist. And everybody says CBT is what fixes this. And then you like well, take yeah, the wrench well and open up I, your own brain. <laughs> yeah, no, it was like, I, now I know what to do. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. now traditional CBT for tinnitus, as I said, doesn't incorporate acceptance and mindfulness. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, I had been incorporating those things in my work for many years with uh, my specialty treating anxiety disorders and depression. So I knew to bring those in and uh, just coordinated that with the, the cognitive restructuring, the cognitive work I had referred to earlier. And uh, I started feeling better immediately, mm-hmm. I, far from being out of the woods. But just even if my distress level and my attention to tinnitus dropped by 10%, that was a tremendous improvement for me. Mm-hmm. Very grateful for it. And uh, just, you know, gradually, I, I couldn't find anyone to treat me. So I coached myself through the process and, and it was successful and very, very welcome.
It took quite a bit of time, particularly after going through six months of hell where you're slamming on your tinnitus with a sledgehammer. Um, it, uh, you know, I gradually, I fully habituated. And, and at that point, I, you know, knew that I had uh, understood something that could be helpful to other people. So I wrote out a, you know, formalized a, a CBT for tinnitus program that I started uh, delivering locally to people in New York City. I connected with ear, nose, and throat doctors there and audiologists, and that became a, a leg of my practice. I, I, to this day, I continue to treat anxiety uh, and depression, but that's a much smaller part of my practice. Mm-hmm. You know, probably eighty percent tinnitus. As a psychologist, I presume part of the training is the ability to work with individuals who have experiences very different from your own in their own lives. Even if you don't have that own personal experience, you have the tools and the mindsets and the the literature and the all that stuff to work with it. Um, and I imagine the same thing is now the case for CBT with tinnitus for other providers who don't necessarily have tinnitus. But do you can you speak a little bit to then? how or if your own personal experience with tinnitus has shaped or morphed or uh, informed how you now work with your tinnitus patients? You know, the, the way I describe it is you would never take tennis lessons with someone who's never been on a tennis court. <laughs> and yet <laughs> we are called on all the time to treat these conditions that we have no personal experience with. <laughs> And so I think that's problematic. Mm. Tinnitus is such an unusual problem and because no one else can hear it. Yes. No one can see it. Even if you're anxious, that typically can be visible to other people. Mm-hmm. They can understand it. Oh my God, Bruce looks so anxious. He must be going through a hard time. Tinnitus, you look completely normal. Yeah. And so it, it's a very unusual phenomenon in that regard. Uh, and I find that having not only having tinnitus, but let, I mean, let's be clear: it, there's tinnitus and there's the distress that tinnitus can trigger. Yes. We need to keep that distinct because uh, it's a very unusual and counterintuitive finding is that most people aren't bothered, mm-hmm. even when it starts. Most people seem maybe it bothers them a little bit. Again, that idea of it bothered me at first, but I got used to it. For me, I would say it. it devastated me at first. It traumatized me at first. And I gradually recovered from that. So it's not only that I I have tinnitus that people can connect with and I can understand what they're going through better, but I was traumatized by it. Um, Because there are some, you know, psychologists and audiologists, oh yeah, I have tinnitus, yeah. But they never really suffer. Yeah, and I think that's a huge difference. That can even be uh, invalidating for people. Completely. (laughs) Because what, 10 to 20% of the population has tinnitus, if you just ask them off off the bat. If you put them in a dark room, what was that study, 99 point something percent uh, in a dark, quiet room after an hour or so, will say they have a ringing in their ears and, oh, what was that? Yeah. I, yeah. I've never noticed that before because that's just the background tinnitus that's physiologically normal. But only a small percentage of those with noticeable tinnitus are bothered by it to the point that you and I have experienced. And it changes, like you said, I, I like how you put that. It's almost devalidating to the individual who's suffering to say, that thing, it's not a big deal. Right. Which is funny because that's eventually where we want them to get. 
Yeah. But treating wise, we can't come at it from that perspective and, and nor what I want to having gone through that as well. Right. And you mentioned something really, really useful there, which is the, the idea of chronic pain and really any kind of chronic health conditions that the skills that you're talking about with treating tinnitus, treating this constant in your life and unwanted that you can't get rid of, those skills really do help you with treating future things. And I don't, you know, I'm not going to ask you to divulge any kind of health conditions, but I can share myself that I've had some pretty debilitating back pain over the past, actually about 11 years, which I was this close to getting surgery for it. Instead, after applying a lot of mindfulness and different ways of thinking and realizing, oh, this is how I normally talk to my patients about this. Why not treat myself that way? I realized I can actually just work with this and live with this and work, learn to handle this in the same way that a lot of my patients are now able to handle things. So I'm not sure if you wanted to speak a little bit more to that idea of using these life skills to assist kind of in the rest of our life and handling of other chronic health conditions. Yeah, no, that's 100% accurate. I mean, this I just think of this as age-old wisdom mm-hmm. that we're drawing from and distilling into a, you know, practical package in what we call cognitive behavior therapy. And so, yeah, for me, it's arthritis. Mm-hmm. Probably about seven or eight years ago now, I began noticing arthritis in my left knee. And I was pretty active at the time, and it really affected my lifestyle. You know, all of the lessons I learned through adapting to tinnitus helped me. I think I spent a day depressed on the couch. And after that, I got up and, okay, you're going to figure this out. You're going to learn to live with it. You're going to accept it and not fight it and not moan about why this happened to you and, and learn how to cope with it and get around it. And now, interestingly... I have it in my thumb joints, which apparently is really common okay. as you get older, yeah. and it's a, a beginning to affect my guitar playing. I can't sustain my my playing or play as hard as I once did. <laughs> yeah, it's another, uh, we'll see where that one goes, but uh, um, that's something I'm accepting and working with right now. And that segues perfectly into this other question of musicians who are going through, look, arthritis in your thumb, as that progresses, it starts making you ask the question, do I want to pick up the guitar or can I play for this long? Or eventually the idea of playing in a band for a gig, is that something that I can sustain, as you mentioned? That starts to bear into the question of, do you then as we talk about like that story that we tell about ourselves, what our own personality and who we are is, do you then consider yourself a guitar player if, and I'm now extrapolating, not just specifically Bruce, but do you consider yourself a guitar player if you can't play guitar? That's, I think, what a lot of our musician patients are going through is that so much of their life identity and so much of their, uh, what, what part of their personality that's important to them is tied up in 
their ability to perform, their ability to write music, their ability to express themselves musically. And by taking that away, which is how a lot of my patients talk about it, it's like they say, it feels like that was taken from me when they have to remove themselves from tour or remove themselves from recording or remove themselves from playing because of their tinnitus or any other health concerns, but sticking to tinnitus. That right there is worth explaining a little bit to people who have never played music before or never really thought about the musician's perspective. I haven't worked, um, and you have maybe more experience with this. I'm sure you do, Frank. I haven't worked with any musicians who have stopped playing or stopped touring. I've actively tried all, to keep them from doing that, <laughs> but I've had and, a couple and I, and who I, come after they have quit a couple years ago and they're trying to get back. Because again, I mean, I send them to you and to Julie Glick in LA for hearing conservation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I ask them, do you, do you, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. It is a, you know, a work hazard exposure to loud sound as a musician. And, and by the way, it's, let's just clarify, it's not just rock and roll. We tend to think about rock and roll as, you know, being the problem, but it's absolutely not. I mean, it, a jazz horns are loud. Grand mm-hmm. piano is loud. You know, anything with a bass is, is loud. Violin next to your ear for eight hours a day is loud. Yeah. Completely. My understanding, I, I don't know if this is, there's research on this, but the rule of thumb is that in, in an orchestral setting, it's the violinists, it's the string players, mm-hmm. because they sit right in front of the horn players. Yep. And their own instrument um, really is generating dangerous levels inches from their ear, inches. And, it, and I've had violinists come to me with tinnitus in their left ear. Yep. For that reason. Very common. Very common. And I think what a lot of providers who don't have the musical experience that you have and your your long passion of music helps you connect that with the patients, I think. Um, I might be projecting here, but helps you connect with that that urge that they have to keep going and find a solution. Right. Because I've heard so many times this idea of, well, this is obviously not something that you should continue as if music is like a, mm-hmm. an option in, in some folks' lives. Like, like uh, mm-hmm. maybe that's not a good idea to continue that anymore. Maybe you should mm-hmm. take up gardening. Uh, look, what I say is there's nothing I did before I got tinnitus that I don't do now. Mm. I just do it with the right hearing protection. Yep. Um, I, I may not do as much of it. I mean, again, I, I don't play in a rock band anymore. That's true. But I had stopped that many years earlier for mm-hmm. other reasons. Um, and I certainly have friends who still play regularly and they use the right hearing protection now. So that, yeah, that is always the goal. Now, if someone does choose to make a life change that it, it and not, continue to perform music, that is a significant life change. And that's an acceptance challenge. We're back to that idea, right? Of what we can and can't control. Mm -hmm. And if a person chooses, I'm not going to put my ears through that onslaught any longer. Mm -hmm. um, It's, it's a, an acceptance challenge to accept that you've gotten to this point in your life and be grateful for the years you had Mm -hmm. with music and to be creative about, I mean, often this, this involves people's livelihoods. So to be creative about what a career transition would look like. But again, it's always going to be to not fall into a pity party. Keep yourself moving forward and being flexible about 
responding effectively to what life throws at you. That's that's so well worded. It sounds, <laughs> yeah, what you're, the way that you put it, I love going back to maybe someone experiences tinnitus for the first time and they're a musician and they notice it for six months straight and they're just going through life as a zombie. I love how you put that because it's not just this thing going on and they may share that they have this new thing, this new experience, but and when they share it, it's dismissed a little. They don't feel validated for what they're going through. And it probably happened because the craft and their expression, their art, it's what might have caused. And so just going through, distressed. I think that's something that is not really talked about. Mm -hmm. And even that question of who am I, you know, a question of identity and are is the person able to continue doing what they love to do or even thought that they did? Yeah, 100%. And it's interesting. I'm, I'm just say quickly on that. It's a wonderful example. I, 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 working now, he's actually got some other complications with a gentleman in his late 60s who uh, is a um, physical therapist at a very high level, um, educated a lot of other physical therapists, ran a very high level practice for many, many years. That was his career. His hobby was skeet shooting. Oh, okay. And, you know, the way he tells it, no one ever used hearing protection. Now, a shotgun, if as I understand it, registers at about 160 decibels. That's above the threshold for pain. And, uh, you know, he looks back on this now, kind of shaking his head and just, I can't believe we did this. But he's got what seems like pretty loud tinnitus now. He loved his sport, but he doesn't do it any longer. Instead, he goes bow shooting. There you go. So he has made that transition. He loves it. He talks about the craft of it. It's been really one of the things that has really helped him with his tinnitus because he he goes bow shooting mindfully. (laughs) So he talks specifically about hearing the tinnitus and allowing it to be there and not fighting it and getting his attention out on this physical process and uh, of another form of target practice. It's a great solution. And it, and it reminds me of a couple patients that I've had who in, in various different ways changed their musical styles. Instead of leaving the career, they went to acoustic music, uh, folk music, smaller ensembles, smaller bands, and really tried to change their exposure, but not change their involvement with music as a whole. And then addressing the new love affair with the acoustic guitar versus the electric can really change uh, your relationship with music and reduce your exposure at the same time. I just think it's smart to get the right help for a problem as serious as tinnitus and its impact on your life. And, you know, again, back to the broken leg analogy, you'd get the broken leg, you'd do your physical therapy. Mm-hmm. And it would be hard and you'd have to do it consistently, but it would help. Mm. And that's how I view cognitive behavior therapy for tinnitus. It's physical therapy for your brain. I love that phrase. And it's a set of 
you know, very specific concrete exercises uh, with a very specific goal. And the exercises can help you achieve that goal. Mm. And uh, so I just see that as smart. Um, it's not the kind of therapy where you're going to lay back on the couch and talk endlessly about your childhood. We just don't do that. That doesn't, you know, just doesn't make sense in this context. Mm-hmm. And These you- are practical strategies for helping you reduce your emotional emotional reaction and courageously fully rejoin your life now while hearing this sound in your head. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the broken leg analogy before, and I, I really like it. And it it's nice also because everybody knows that people can break their legs. It's something you don't want to happen, but everybody everybody's aware of it. So you know that if you do break your leg, you're not unique. You're not alone. You're not an island amongst yourself. You know that there are solutions. In fact, you probably can name the solutions before they happen. It's just common knowledge. But then if you develop tinnitus, I think even though so many people have it, people fall into this doldrums of, I'm the only one who has this and I am unique in my experience of it, my the loudness of it or how distressing it is or the fact that I can't sleep. Why, why is that? What's that disconnect there? Um, yeah, no, that's a really, really good question. And, uh, you know, I'll elaborate a little bit on what you just said to extend the metaphor that there are activities one can engage in where you're more likely to break your leg. Yeah. Right. If you're more physically active, if you, I don't know, play, you know, soccer, play sports. And that's the case with music. If you're, you know, going to, you know, be engaged around loud sound on a regular basis, there's a more of a chance you'll get tinnitus. And it just is what it is. It's something to accept. How do, why do people feel alone? Yeah. <laughs> Again, it's a very lonely thing because no one else can hear it. I think that's a big part of it, right? You know, I'm suffering with this thing that only I can hear, right? Again, if I broke my leg, you can see that. There's the cast. Here's the crutch, right? No one's going to question that. It's, it's interesting you said earlier, uh, use that, I think 10 to 15% of the population has tinnitus, but it's actually the longer we live, the greater chance that we're going to get tinnitus, right? So it's, it's actually, I think, below age 40, it's more like, you know, 5 to 8%. And in your, and in your 40s, it starts to go up to the point where when you're in your 60s, it's one in three mm-hmm. people tinnitus is going to start. So at that point, like I definitely see a difference there that the younger people I work with, they just don't know about tinnitus. They're, they don't know other people who have it. Once someone's in their 50s or 60s, I can say, hey, you're not alone. Just start asking your friends and family. Mm-hmm. And inevitably they come back with, oh my gosh, it's just amazing how many people have this. And it bothered them at first, but they got used to it. That's the inevitable story. Not that there aren't people who continue to suffer. I think it's because they've been responding to it in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. But it, it just, again, it it feels very lonely because no one else can hear it. I think that's, and, and it's not a common, it, it, it's much through the COVID pandemic, it pretended it's got a lot of press. Yeah. So it's, um, people are much more aware of it now. Unfortunately, a lot of that press was negative and, and included a ton of misinformation. Correct. To say that it's, it's more of an awareness and the treatment of the individual can start with that, with that realization, with that clarification of you're not alone with this. 
how much though should we be putting more effort into general public uh, health awareness of this? Because like you experienced six months of, I'm just going to come out and say it, not good treatment. Mm -hmm. A lot of folks do those six months by themselves without any treatment, Mm. which is sometimes better, Mm -hmm. sometimes worse than not good treatment. I'm not going to pass judgment there. Only a small percentage finds the Bruce Hubbards of the world. And I guess here's my real question. Do you think the real solution or the real uh, most power that we can do is through educating providers better or through educating general population um, to be better literate about this? I think, and I know this is your mission, educating the general population about hearing protection and hearing conservation, I think, is a really, really important goal. I think in regard to tinnitus, it's the healthcare providers who are making the mistakes, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So typically, if someone is, I mean, for many people, tinnitus starts and they just blow it off. It's kind of hard, hard for me to fully understand how that can happen, but I think it happens. Yep. But if you're bothered by it, if you're concerned about it, you'll go to your doctor, your primary care doctor will then send you to an ear, nose and throat doctor, an otolaryngologist who will do an evaluation and they're looking for sp- some specific medical kind of mechanical causes of it. Not so much to treat the tinnitus, but because those problems can be serious in themselves. Correct, yes. So they're screening for more serious problems of which tinnitus may be a symptom. Serious medical problems, yeah. Yeah, they locate those medical problems about one in a hundred cases of tinnitus. So that leaves 99 of us out of a hundred Mm-hmm. The next step along the way is, hey, if you have tinnitus, you might have hearing loss, and that can be treated with hearing aids, so you better see an audiologist. And I think that's where people get stuck. Right. And the audiologist would then do the diagnostic testing, find out if there's any hearing loss, treat the hearing loss with hearing aids or whatever other means, potentially treat the tinnitus with masking devices. And that's what we talked about earlier. And then linking it back to what we said before, masking devices outside of the hearing aid realm may be recommended as a short-term tool, but then become a long-term crutch that is being applied to the problem. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. That's right. Back to that. And I think of it like a tripod, right? Where the, the average tinnitus patient probably just needs... The average meaning, you know, 90% who aren't that worried about it, who just mentioned it during a physical to their to their PCP or whatever, they probably just need a little bit of clarification and demystifying and then they're on their way and they're fine. Those individuals who are in distress probably need all three parts of the tripod though. One part being CBT or some kind of mental health treatment for the mental health aspect of it, which is frankly speaking, the thing that's actually causing the distress. Mm-hmm. Uh, They probably need some clarification of their audiologic condition, right? Do you have hearing loss? Do you not? And talk about hearing conservation for whatever situations you're in. And then in a lot of cases, the medical referral is important, but it shouldn't just be, it shouldn't be one of any of these, Mm -hmm. but all three are probably necessary for those who are in distress. Yeah. Yeah, no, that all makes sense. Each, Each provider has their role to play. But the mental health provider is generally not included. Right, which is, that's sad. Yeah, and it's particularly sad because cognitive behavior therapy is the only thing 
that has been shown to reliably help reduce the distress and suffering due to tinnitus. Correct. So that is well understood in the field, but there just aren't enough of us to go around. So we need more CBT therapists. Um, so if you're listening and you want to be a CBT therapist, call in to 1-800-NO. Um, it, <laughs> it's, a, it's a real issue, isn't it? Um, Bruce, thank you for, for taking the time. No, great, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's so wonderful of you to be doing this and making this available to people. Well, thank you so much. Talking Ears is a production of Earmark Hearing Conservation. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode and hearing wellness in general. The theme music is by Scott Hallam. You can find more of his music at audiodowsing.com. Additional production and editing assistance is by Juan Vasquez and Mary Kim. Thanks for listening.